Well, church, we had some difficulties with our technology this weekend, and so the sermon that you're going to hear following is not the sermon that was delivered on Sunday morning. I re-preached it in a bedroom all by myself, so if it sounds a little weird, that's the reason. But here is Ecclesiastes, part 38. Thanks. Church, we're going to be in the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes this morning, so please open up your Bible to there. Continuing on from where we left off last week. If you remember, Kohelet, that persona that Solomon has chosen to identify himself as, is once again bringing us to an area of contrast. We're considering the benefit and the detriment of two things in our passage, and they're familiar things for us. You know, this topic has already been at, at, excuse me, addressed at length so far in this book. And this book, mind you, that we call Wisdom Literature, is once again calling us to consider and contrast wisdom and folly wisdom and foolishness. And beloved, I would compel you to not disengage at this point, thinking, oh no, not wisdom again. What more can we have to say about wisdom? What more can wisdom teach us? And the answer to that church is a lot. Consider that the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus, our Savior, is the wisdom of God. So it's never going to be a waste of time when we're considering the wisdom that Scripture imparts. We are never, especially in this life, but also in the next, going to be at a point where we might say, I have enough wisdom, or I have all the wisdom I need. You need more. I need more. We will need more. And by the grace of God, we need to persist in pursuing wisdom and His strength seeking to grow therein. You see, because the point that the Lord wants us to understand in our text this morning is this, that wisdom is better than might. Wisdom is better than might, but wisdom is not always heeded. So let's read our text, and then after we read it, we'll ask the Lord to bless our time through prayer. So if you could follow along with me, please. The reading of God's Word in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, beginning at verse 13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and the words are not heard. The words of the wise, heard in quiet, are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May He grant us understanding and apply it to our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful to You for preserving Your word. It is a light to our path, a lamp to our feet. And we ask that you would cause us to understand it this morning, that you would help us to know you as you have revealed yourself and your will. And we know that we don't have the strength in ourselves to do that, Lord. So we pray that you would bring us to a place of understanding, that you would cause me to get out of the way of the meaning of your text, that we might hear from you, as it were, as your word is preached. Grant understanding, Lord, and we do ask that you would do this all for Christ's glory's sake. In his name we pray. Amen. So, we have something that has left the teacher, the preacher, Solomon, full of wonder. 
Something seemed great to him. He sees something that impressed him, but it leaves him mystified, as it were. It leaves him pondering the meaning of such things. In our passage, we are introduced to a story. Derek Kinder, in his commentary, calls this passage a parable, actually. And in it, Solomon notes that he has seen something, something under the sun. Now, that's a phrase that should be familiar to us. This phrase, under the sun, is a phrase that he uses in all but three chapters of this book, saying things like, there is nothing new under the sun, I discovered a great evil under the sun, and the example of wisdom under the sun, as he previously said in this chapter even. And in doing so, he's reminding us that he is dealing with something that is earthy. He is dealing with something that we have to come to grips with here in our flesh. This is the way the world works at some times, in other words, and it seemed great to him. It caused him to be perplexed. And so he notes that there is a small city, a vulnerable city, in other words, and a great king has come against it and has built siege works around it. A siege work is essentially a tower. It's, it's a base of operation from which attacks can be administrated. And this small city doesn't stand much of a chance at all. It's, that's the point. We're wanting to see this contrast here, this great king and this small city. And so this king and his army, they're too great, but by God's gracious providence, there is a poor man in the city who has wisdom, who has a wisdom that is able to deliver the city. He has a plan for their deliverance, for their salvation. And there are two ways that people will have classically understood verse 15 to 17. It's either A, the poor man's plan was made known and the city was delivered, but then, sadly, no one remembered the poor man after the fact. He got no credit. He faded back into obscurity, as poor people tend to do in our sin-sick world. Or B, this poor man had a plan that would have worked, excuse me, but it was not, uh, but since he is who he is, his wisdom was despised, and his words, which would have worked, were not heard. And the city was overrun and captured. And listen, I mean, it's a sad story either way, isn't it? But it doesn't really matter which view is correct. The point of the passage isn't changed either way. Whichever way is the best way to understand it, that is. Either way, you see, we come from, we come from it understanding that wisdom is better than might, but wisdom isn't always heeded or perhaps even remembered. And then he offers a conclusion to his story. It's verse 17 and 18. And his conclusion is this. Wisdom is superior than foolishness. It is better than might, but that's no guarantee that foolish people will accept it or that a sinner will accept it. It's not getting at moral evil there. When it says a sinner, it's getting at the fool. And sometimes wisdom is listened to. Sometimes it is not. That's his conclusion on the matter. Now on your outline, I want to speak about the background of the text. Because we need to ask ourselves, why is this passage here? Why did the Holy Spirit inspire Solomon to pen these words for his church, for his people, to meditate upon for thousands of years? Is it a true story that Solomon actually saw, or is it something else? Perhaps it's a convenient way of teaching us a true principle. As I mentioned earlier, Derek Kinder in his commentary considers this account to be a parable. Benjamin Shaw in his commentary doesn't believe this to be a true story that Solomon witnessed. The Jewish Targum, which is the oral tradition and interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures, it's this, in essence, teaching manual that the teachers would use in the synagogue. Well, this Jewish Targum considers this passage to be an allegory about a person's body who was invaded by a spirit. And so it's talking about a, the right way to overcome that spirit. 
And then some commentators believe it to be a true story. A true story, but then they very strangely mention a battle that fits the description, but it takes place roughly 700 years after this book is written. So, what is it? Well, we do know from the biblical record that Solomon was not really considered a man of war, not like his father David was, right? Remember, David wanted to be the one to build the temple, but God refused him and instructed him that he couldn't do it, but his son would be able to. And of course, that son was Solomon. Solomon became king as a young man, perhaps even a young teenager. So it's possible that he could have witnessed this account during one of his dad's conquests, during one of his campaigns. But generally speaking, Solomon's life was free from military conflict. His, his rule was free from military conflict. In 1 Kings 5.4, and this is Solomon speaking, we read, But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. That's, that's pretty nice, right? I mean, peace like this hasn't really been experienced since the time of Joshua or whenever the judge in Israel was lifted up. But of course, that judge would eventually die and then their, Israel would slip back into apostasy and be canonized once again. So this type of peace that Israel is enjoying in Solomon's reign is, is quite unique. But at the end of Solomon's life, and this is all recorded in 1 Kings 11, there's, there's no need to turn there. Solomon's heart was turned from the Lord because of the marriages he had gotten himself into. His fleshly desires, his fleshly pursuits had, land him, had landed him in a place of disfavor with the Lord, and his heart was turned from the Lord. And so because of this, the Lord tells him in 1 Kings 11 that he's going to bring adversaries against him until his death. But then he also promises him that the kingdom won't be removed from him in his lifetime, but it will be in his son's. So maybe, perhaps, he could have learned of this account of battle at that time, you know, towards the end of his life. But the problem is, we don't have any record of a battle like this in First Kings or Second Chronicles at all, or anywhere in Scripture before this period of time. Or, you know, maybe this is just a battle that he witnessed happening in places near him that had nothing to do with him. We really don't know. So again... We need to ask ourselves, why is this passage here? Is the Bible a book for military generals to pick up and glean wisdom concerning battle from? I'm not asking if it's possible that they could glean wisdom from it concerning battle tactics. That's a different question. And the answer to that is, of course, yes, it's possible. But is the Bible a book to teach us national military styles and strategies? Is the Bible to be treated as a companion to the art of war? You know, is this story here in Ecclesiastes chapter 9 here so that we might be prepared to know how to defend ourselves against a nation bigger than us? And I don't think so. The, actually, the answer to that is a resounding no. The Holy Spirit doesn't so much care to use Scripture so that the nations will learn how to defend themselves from other nations. He gives us means of common grace for that. The point here, and everywhere from Genesis to Revelation, is that we should know Christ and that Christ would be exalted. That we would come away from every text of Scripture being led to love Christ more, to desire Christ more, to know Christ more in the redemption that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit provide. That is the point. That is always the point. If it's not the specific point of the text, 
It's bringing us to that point. So what Solomon is doing here is showing us biblical principles under the sun that are going to help us to see Christ and to see our need for Christ more clearly. Let's consider this a little bit more clearly if you're following along on your outline. This, we're now turning our attention to this contrast of wisdom and foolishness. So what he's doing in this section specifically, which really began back in our text from last week, is he's comparing wisdom and foolishness, contrasting them again. Again, it's, it's a very practical book, and, and, and certainly those things, wisdom and foolishness, pertain to Christ and our reaction to him, don't they? But now he's narrowing in on a particular kind of foolishness that people often employ. He's alluded to it back in verse 11 of Ecclesiastes 9, where he said, The battle is not to the strong. So the foolishness that is in view here is the kind which thinks strength is always greater than wisdom. Now, it could be that you're thinking, well, you know, pastor, there are some times when strength is more valuable than wisdom. Strength isn't always bad, of course. You know, if you need to get a jar of pickles open, strength is pretty helpful. But also, you know, wisdom would tell you that if you tap the edges of the lid of the jar a few times, you'll break that seal and you'll be able to get it open without much strength. Or if you're like Pastor Nick and you're, you're wrenching on cars and you have a, a bolt that has essentially been welded to the block of the engine over time, some strength there would help. Some arm strength, some hand strength would help so that you could get that bolt free. But again, wisdom would tell you that you can get a breaker bar or you can have some more leverage on it then. Or you can spray it down with some liquid wrench and you can level the playing field. Less strength is required. There are other examples we could think of, I'm sure. And Solomon is certainly not saying that all strength is bad. We mustn't think that. Strength is often commended in the Word. The strength of the Lord, for example. Consider Exodus 15, verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will exalt Him. Okay, so strength there is valued. And in many cases, we see the Lord Himself. Um, we see the Lord Himself giving people power and strength. He's the very source of it. Deuteronomy, just a few chapters over there from Exodus, in chapter 8, verse 17 to 18, it says, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, and He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. Or how about in the New Testament? We go to the book of Romans, chapter 13. It's a familiar chapter, I'm sure, to most of us, dealing with governments. And in verse 1, we read, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. The word authorities there is the same word for powers. So let every person be subject to the governing powers, for there is no authority, power, except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So then, we can say with confidence that Solomon is not trying to say that strength is worthless or useless here. That's not the case. Remember even what we learned just, I think it was last week, in Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Do it with your might. So it's not general disposition of angst against strength or might that we have in our text. Even more, 
There are times when wisdom and strength are held together as companions. We saw that just a few months ago in this very book. Uh, Just turn over a couple pages to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. There in verse 19, we read, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. So strength and might aren't bad or worthless. What he is getting at then is that there is a kind of strength, a certain might, that if we pursue it over and opposed to wisdom, we would be positioning ourselves for ruin, for destruction. I hope you see that. In our, in our story from Solomon, if the wisdom was acted on, it meant the great king would have lost and deliverance for the small city would have been achieved. So sometimes, even if it seems like might provides an advantage, wisdom is better. There are times, there are instances in our life in which a pursuit of wisdom is the right option over relying on our might. And an important thing to remember in this discussion as well, church, and we need to be certain about this, is that we need to pursue wisdom. Wisdom, Christian wisdom, is not something that just comes naturally to us. It, it, what comes naturally to us is the world's wisdom. That does, of course. But the scripture tells us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to what? To death. That's the world's wisdom. It leads to death. It it proudly assumes you can make it all by yourself with your own might, as it were. But there is a wisdom from above, isn't there? As James, the brother of our Lord, writes, it's a wisdom that comes from outside of us, a wisdom that is a gift from the Lord. But how do we get this gift? Now, we've looked at the account of the beginning of Solomon's reign in this series before, so I won't have you turn there now. But what was, the, what was it that Solomon asked for of the Lord when he first assumed the throne? Do you remember that? He, he goes before the Lord, and the Lord posits before him, what is it that you desire? And Solomon's answer was a discerning mind. He asked from God for a discerning mind. And of course, the Lord was well pleased with him in that. And so God says that he will grant to him wisdom and strength and and everything else. But Solomon was in fact asking for wisdom so that he can rule the kingdom in a way that would honor the Lord. And so what we should see in this is that wisdom didn't originate in Solomon. It came to him from God. He did ask for the right thing, but then God says he was going to give to him wisdom. And that's how we get it too, church. Do you believe that? Or, let's to, to further make the case, let's turn a few pages back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and look at verse 26. There we read, For to the one who pleases him, meaning God, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. And so you can see there, I think, that the business of gathering and collecting requires strength, right? So it's even positioning wisdom and strength as a contrast even there back in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And so what we should be seeing here, I hope, is that wisdom is something that comes to us. We don't find it by looking inward. It's not the result of doing some navel-gazing, of exploring all the different options. No, 
Christian biblical wisdom is something that comes to us from God. And this is why I, for one, am always praying for wisdom. I know that in me, there is a fountain of foolishness that is only waiting for an opportunity to overflow. And, and usually it's in front of my wife. I'm sure she'll tell you that. But also, in a way that should cause us to tremble and remember the promises of the gospel in Christ, our foolish sins are always against the Lord. It is against the Lord that we have sinned and done what is evil in His sight, that He may be blameless in His judgments and justified in His words. And so, we as His people ask God for wisdom just as Solomon did. It's what James, the brother of our Lord, instructs us to do. Remember James 1.5? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. So we don't rely on our own might. We don't rely on our own strength. If, if you're involved with pastors, prayer partners, or you have been in the past, you know that it is a weekly request of the elders to ask for wisdom. And for me personally, that habit began many, many years ago. I was involved in a prayer group, and at the time I, I was not pastor, I was not an elder, there were some pastors in the group, and every week we would gather for prayer, and one of the pastors never had a request for himself. He always had requests, but they were requests for other people. And don't misunderstand me here. Intercessory prayer is wonderful. It is a blessing. It, it's needed and a privilege to be able to pray to the one true and living God on behalf of others. But this one pastor never or extremely rarely had any requests for himself. An older brother at the time, one who was a mentor in the faith to me, would always try to get a request out of him. And I remember this brother talking to me about how it was strange to him that this pastor never had any personal requests. Never had any that he at least shared with us. Like he wasn't a man who needed independent upon the Lord. And I'm, I'm sure he was a man who needed independent upon the Lord. But the, the point is, is that it came across like he wasn't. And that stuck with me. And so when I started attending prayer partners every week, even before I was in pastoral ministry, I made it my point. I made it my point to consider that I am always in need of mercy and grace from the Lord. That I need to grow in the fear of the Lord. And the Word of God tells us in Proverbs 9 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of the Lord and wisdom are related. To fear the Lord is wise. To have wisdom, one must fear the Lord. So, I started asking for wisdom and discernment, no matter what other prayer needs I may have needed. Uh, whatever else was going on in my life, I found it to be true that wisdom and discernment was something that I would always need and could ask for. And so eventually, Brother Sean started to anticipate it eventually, and he would call it WD-40 for short. So when we go around taking prayer requests, it would just be like, yeah, WD-40 for me. And then eventually, I discovered other gospel needs in my life, and I eventually added humility and love to the list. Four things that I could always stand to grow in, no matter whatever else was going on around me. And so every week, I'm asking for those things sometimes also that I would just simply abound in every fruit of the Spirit. Because again, these things of which wisdom is included, do not originate in us. They come to us from God. They are just some of what Ephesians 1-3 mentions, the blessings in the heavenly places that are ours in Christ Jesus. So church, Solomon is telling us that we need wisdom. 
a wisdom that doesn't come from us, and a wisdom that is better than might, better than self-effort, better than our merit. And this wisdom is also a wisdom that is sometimes not heeded. There are a number of different applications we could draw from this, but there is only one that I want to focus on this morning, and we'll do that in one of Jesus' parables. Now, again, I have to ask you what I asked you earlier, which I understand is dangerous potentially, especially if you did what I compelled you to not do and you disengaged thinking this is a familiar topic. Because, once again, the parable I want to look at is a popular parable, a beloved one. One that people who aren't even Christian probably know a little about. And so I ask you once again to not disengage at this point. Don't just assume that you know everything about this parable and then let your mind wander. Let's be intent on focusing on the Lord's word. Let's then turn to Luke chapter 10, please. That's where we'll be reading this parable. We'll be at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, two small coins, and he gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So, as I was saying earlier, this is a popular passage, right? It's a familiar one. It's the Good Samaritan. Well, actually, the Good Samaritan is not actually in the text. That phrase doesn't come up in our Bible Uh, It does in the little heading above the paragraph breaks, but those aren't inspired words. Jesus doesn't call him the Good Samaritan. This parable, I think, might actually be better titled The Samaritan Who Loved or The Samaritan Who Did the Right Thing, as I have it there on your outline. And often, what people take from this is that we should be like the Samaritan, that we need to take action and be an asset for others, that we need to help people in need whenever we see them. And that's not wrong, of course, especially in contrast to the other two actors in the parable, but that's not the intent of this passage. And that's the danger of being blindsided by familiarity. You see, often, this parable is either put forth or remembered by us as a parable of general religious niceness. It's just civil goodness sometimes, and after all, Everyone knows what a good Samaritan is. We have a law based upon this title. You don't even need to be a Christian 
to be a good Samaritan is what some people think. It's just about being a good person, about doing the right thing. And that's why we can't afford to be blindsided by the familiarity of this passage. It should be mentioned that there are different ways and different emphases we can place on the parable. And for time's sake, we're not going to be able to deal with every detail in it, but we are particularly considering it in light of wisdom and strength. The sort of wisdom that is contrasted to and is better than might in some instances. And I would also make the assertion that this sort of contrast of wisdom and might was exactly the context that Jesus is teaching this parable in. So let's keep that in mind and consider the passage. Verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Now, this isn't the kind of lawyer you may be thinking about. This is not a man who has passed the bar exam. This isn't a Johnny Cochran type. This lawyer is a scribe who was an expert in the Torah. He knew it front to back and back to front. If there was a dispute between people in the Old Covenant, his job was to know the law of God and then discern a judgment based upon the Word of God. And he's coming now to test Jesus. Apparently, he wants to make sure that Jesus has the right answer to this question that he has. And you need to see the test that he puts before him. And being that it's a test, we're made to understand that this lawyer believes he already knows the correct answer. He's only asking because he wants to make sure that Jesus knows the right answer, which of course is the answer that he, the lawyer, thinks is correct. And you know what this is like. I'm sure you've done this to someone. I mean, especially if you have kids. It's son, and you know the answer to these questions before you ask your children this, but it's son, did you brush your teeth? Daughter, did you do the thing that I asked you to do? And you very well know the answer. You're just wanting to see if they are on the same page with you, if they're going to tell the truth. But this is a much more serious situation, is it not? He asked him the most important question a person could ask. And he says to him, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What act or what actions must I do in order to have eternal life? It's important. And Jesus, being wise and knowing the intent of the lawyer, he turns the question back on him and he causes the lawyer to quote the answer himself. He goes to Deuteronomy and Leviticus and where they would say, and he quotes it here in verse 27. He says that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And what he's doing there is he's summing up the law of God. The first half, where you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind, that represents the first table of the law, the first four commandments. Your neighbor as yourself, that represents the second table, the last six commandments. And upon this answer, the Lord Jesus affirms him. He tells him, yep, you got it. That's right. That's it. That's what's needed. Now go on and do it. And by saying do it and live it, he's saying, when he says do this and live, he's meaning to imply that it has to be done perfectly and perpetually. Live it out without error, without ever neglecting it, and you will live. Now, this is where we need to be paying close attention because we cannot be confused here. Jesus just said, do this and live. But remember the context. This is not a parable that teaches disciples about the way of life. This parable is not about instructing us on how we should live, but it's actually a parable on the way to life. I want to repeat that, and we'll be coming back to this later. 
But this parable is not given to instruct believers on how they should live, but it is to correct this lawyer about the way to life. Can we take something from it about how disciples should live? Of course. But that's not the point of the parable. This lawyer can spell out from the law that we ought to love God and our neighbor, but can he and will he be able to love? And, and friends, this is really quite amazing. He, this lawyer, is standing in the presence of the righteous redeemer of sinners, and he's actually trying to justify himself. The righteousness that is required is literally within arm's reach. He can touch and feel the Savior right there with the Savior standing before him. He's basically going to tell him that he doesn't need a Savior. And so it leaves us with a parable that is deeply convicting. And it is directed to everyone that thinks they are a good person. Or said another way, it's directed to all of us. Who of us, before the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, thought and knew we were vile and worthy of the hottest flames of hell? Who among us, before the mercy of the Lord in our life, would have had the wisdom and the foresight to proclaim, Woe is me, for I am ruined, and I am a man or a woman of unclean lips. None of us would have proclaimed that apart from the light of the Lord's holiness being shined upon the darkness of our hearts. None of us understand that we are by nature children of wrath. We all thought we were good. Some of us certainly thought we were really good. So in that sense, this parable is directed to every one of us. Now, look back at that follow-up question the lawyer asks him. He's wanting to justify himself upon the answer that was given. And he says, well, who then is my neighbor? He was right when he said that. He was, that he was to love the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his strength, and with all his mind, and his neighbor as himself. But then Jesus pressed him on that fact and pointed out that the love, that love to God and to neighbor needed to be shown perfectly and perpetually throughout his life if he was to inherit eternal life the life of the glory to come, peace with God now and forever in his heaven. And so this man now tries to justify himself. He's wanting to make sure that he's living up to the standard. And so he asks, who is my neighbor? It's a good question at this point. Where do you draw the line when it comes to demonstrating love to others? It's not a bad question, but his motive is clearly wrong. He's trying to test Jesus and he's trying to justify himself. And this is again simply amazing to me, friends. He only asks Jesus about the second part of the question. Why is that? Why does he pick on that? Maybe he thinks this is the easier portion of the table of the law, those laws that are to our fellow man. Maybe he thinks it's easier to manage. Maybe he thinks there are some enemies which he doesn't need to love, and he's trying to be sure about that. Or, even worse, Maybe he thinks he has been loving the Lord, his God, with all his heart, strength, soul, and mind. And so he doesn't need to ask about that. We don't know. But he asks, to whom should he love so that he would inherit eternal life? And I, I hope you see what is lying behind this question. He's saying, who is my neighbor? And then also, who is not my neighbor? Who is entitled to this love and who isn't? And pay attention, friends, because this is what we do with the law of God when we feel it pressing upon us. We try to figure out where that line of acceptability is. We try to get right to the edge of it and then not cross it. 
we do the same thing. We try to hold our sin with gentle hands, not letting our right hand knowing what our left hand is doing, as it were. We try to redefine the law and qualify it so that we can live comfortably with with it, so that we can excuse or explain away our own sins. We try to paint ourselves in a good light so that we can put our conscience at ease. And so even though we know what God says, we believe it doesn't apply to us in that specific instance. And that is a detriment to us, church. We, we should not do that. Well, this man then, the lawyer, seems to be seeking about the bare minimum. Who then is my neighbor? Who's entitled to this love for me that I may inherit eternal life? That's the question. And here's where Jesus gives this parable. And I'm sure that most of you can fill in the blanks on this part of the story without me even reading it. If you've been in church for some length of time, you've heard this parable before. Let me just give a, a brief recap. So a man is going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Don't know much about this man. But on the way, a gang of robbers meet him. They strip him naked. They beat him. They steal his possessions and they leave him battered, half dead. He's in danger of bleeding out. He needs rescue. He's not able to save himself. And then we meet the first potential rescuer on the path. And it's a priest. And I'm sure upon hearing that it was a priest, this lawyer probably got excited. He's like, here's the example I'm going to get. That's a good example. Because scribes and priests work in close proximity to one another. But what happens is the priest just passes on by. He looks, he sees the better man, and he passes by on the other side. And then a Levite is the next person. Praise the Lord. The next person is probably going to be the one to help him. Levites work closely with priests. These are men of mercy, or so they should be. But once again, the Levite sees him and passes by on the other side. Again, we don't know why. People have speculated all kinds of reasons, believable reasons, I'm sure, but it really doesn't matter for our purposes this morning because the next person we meet is a Samaritan on the road. Now, I will say this about the encounter. Samaritans and Jews did not get along at this point. Racial tensions are high for us in America right now, but it is nothing in comparison to the tensions between the Samaritans and the Jews in the first century. And it went both ways for them. If anything, a Samaritan may have been happy to see his enemy lying dead on the trail, or if he was not dead, you know, he might have even wanted to finish him off. And a Jewish man, if he was able, he may have refused help from a Samaritan. That's what made Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman so shocking as well, these cultural tensions. But this Samaritan doesn't operate according to the social constructs of his day. And of course, I'm sure you know, the Samaritan does the right thing. He has compassion on the man. He doesn't pass by on the other side. He sees him and then he goes to him. He he binds up his wounds. He pours oil and wine on him. That's very interesting. He picks him up and puts him on his own donkey and then brings him to an inn and takes care of him there. The next day, he asks to leave, but he's not abandoning the man that he rescued. He lets the innkeeper know that this man is now in his care, and he gives the innkeeper some money and tells him that whatever costs build up in caring for this man, he will pay him back. He's going to come back for this man. He rescues the man. He cares for the man. He provides for the man. He watches over the man. He makes promises with regard to the man. He returns to the man. That is how committed he is. He takes the whole burden of the care of the man, undeserved, 
and without being asked by the man, at great cost to himself, with regard to a man that would have considered him an enemy, as he laid there, dying, helpless, unable to even ask for help. Now, I'm not saying that this parable is purely an allegory, but don't you hear in this parable a godlike love? Doesn't this parable remind you of the way that we are loved by God? Do you remember how God explained through Ezekiel his choosing of Israel? It's, it's chapter 16. We don't have time to address it right now in full length, but I would encourage you to read it this afternoon. There, what happens is God pictures himself as a man walking along a road. So very similar to this parable already. And on this road, he finds an infant in its blood. And the parents of the child are the pagan nations of the world. And God looks with love on the child. He has compassion on her. And God nurtures the infant to health. And he cleans her. And he cares for her all the way. He doesn't hold back anything. Or how about the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 5? Just a couple chapters over. Let's turn there and, and look at it. Romans 5. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, without strength. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For will one scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die? But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see it, church? The comparison, the similarities. Now, this love of the Samaritan for the wounded man is impressive, but it doesn't hold a candle to the divine love that God loved us with. The Samaritan love reminds us of God's love. It's, it's directing us to it. But God's love is so much greater. God purchased us by his own blood, we read in Acts twenty twenty eight. The love that Christ shows for sinners vastly outweighs and exceeds the account we have of the Samaritan's love. It's a counterintuitive love. It's a costly love upon the undeserving, and we cannot forget that. Now, at this point, Jesus ends the parable, and he does so with another question, and in doing so, he flips the narrative on the lawyer. The lawyer was asking, who is my neighbor? He wants to know who he can get away with not loving, and Jesus turns it around, and he says, who proved to be a neighbor? And so the question that should be asked isn't really, who are our neighbors, but will you be a neighbor? It's a verb. Who became a neighbor to this man on the road to Jericho? And the lawyer can't bring himself to answer. Maybe, maybe he just responds with disgust. Maybe he responds in bewilderment. But he doesn't say the Samaritan. He just says the one who showed mercy. And this brings us to the challenge that our Lord issues at the end of the parable. Here's where I want to once again speak about this contrast of wisdom and might. Jesus tells him, go and do likewise. And this is also why I mentioned earlier on that we cannot forget the context and that we'd be coming back to it. Because remember, this is not, first of all, an instruction for disciples on how they should follow Christ in their actions. This isn't a parable about modeling good works. What it is, is a rebuke for this lawyer about the way to life. Do you remember his question? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What good works must I perform to be assured of entering into the glorious rest? And Jesus brings this man before the law of God and even has him say it. What does the law of God say? You are to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And note, Jesus doesn't tell him he's wrong. 
He simply assures him that if he can do it perfectly, he will live. And so the lawyer needs to justify himself. He needs to find a way out of the law and its requirements because he wants this eternal life. If he is to have this salvation by his own strength, by his own might, it requires a mighty work. Is there a way out of that? He needs to love the Lord with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind, and also his neighbor as himself. And so look, it seems as if he thinks he can do the first half, but he wants to make sure that there are some people that he doesn't have to love, that he can get away with so he can be secure. And so listen, if my application of these passages is trust in your own strength, You have the kind of strength that can cause a city to fall and be assured, church. That is the message some churches put forth. Or said differently, if my application to you is go and live like the good Samaritan, then in fact what I am doing is condemning you. If all I have to say to you is be like the Samaritan who helped the man on the road, then your soul is doomed. Because the whole point of this story is to expose the self-righteous, evil heart of the lawyer and to press home upon him his need of grace. He needs a wisdom from above. He needs a wisdom that can deliver. You see, if he understood this parable, if he got it right, and we don't know, it just ends abruptly, He's going to renounce his own righteousness and confess that he's never loved like that. He's never neighbored like that. He needs to realize that he doesn't have the necessary righteousness to have peace with God. He should see he needs help, that he needs a mediator, that he needs someone who is righteous to go and do it on his behalf. And there is only one mediator, church. You see, the law of God is meant to show us our need, it is a schoolmaster a tutor to bring us to Christ for justification by faith, the Apostle Paul calls it. That is the wisdom that is better than might, friends, the gospel. But just as it was for the poor man in the city, this wisdom is often despised and the words not heard. But do you hear them, church? My friends, if that question and statement from Jesus to the teacher of the law doesn't bother you, if it doesn't make you to flee to the cross of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then this teacher of the law isn't the only one who has missed the point of the parable. If you can sit here in the light of this today and say, I'm a good person, then you don't understand what Jesus is saying. If you think that you are by your might and your strength doing what God requires for you to be justified and inherit eternal life, by either maintaining it or earning it in the first place, then you at some point have overlooked your sins. You've made an excuse for it. You have cut the corners off it so that it doesn't offend you. Remember, Solomon said, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So sinner, will you look to Christ? Will you continue to call upon the grace of God that you may continue to look to Christ and have your hope in His life death, and resurrection. That is the wisdom you need. It is not your strength. It is the strength that God offers in His gospel, which you need, which I need. The kind of wisdom that would cause the Apostle Paul to say from our call to worship passage this morning, that I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Have you decided, excuse me, have you decided to know that? I want to close this morning with a quote from Sinclair Ferguson's commentary on this passage here in Ecclesiastes. He says, and he calls Solomon, Kohelet, he calls him the pundit. 
He says, the pundit could not erase from his mind the realization that the poor man who, had, who he had seen save the city was the only truly wise man, but he could not understand why he had been ignored. He was like a man caught in a blackout whose torch flickers on momentarily before the battery goes dead. He knew he had seen something important, but what was it, and what did it mean? He goes on to say, the New Testament helps us understand God's Son, His wisdom, became poor for us so that we might become truly rich through Him. Amen, church. You see, we can't come to God on our strength. We need a better way. God's plan, His wisdom, is that Christ would be that way. God has given us that way through the Son. The wisdom of God is better than our might. Hear that. Believe that. Rest in that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful that you are all wise and that your plan of salvation is true and the righteous requirements of the law are met in Christ so that we might not have to be confused about thinking that we need to meet them in ourselves, Lord. No, in fact, we denounce every righteous act for our own justification that we would commit. Lord, we want to do good works but so that you would be glorified, but we know that our, our hope is in Christ and we rest in his completed work for us. We thank you for giving to us the Holy Spirit, anointing us with oil as it were, uniting us to you and to one another. And we pray, Lord, that you would be exalted in our lives. Let us not be confused about the gospel. Increase our wisdom that we might never look to place any hope in ourselves. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.